right. Well, good morning, everyone. All right, there it is, a little delayed. Uh, But it is great to be with you here this morning. Uh, My name is Michael Wexler. I'm the youth and young adult minister here. If I don't know you, uh, it'd be great to get to meet you a little bit today and get to know you a little bit better. Uh, As has been mentioned, we do have a luncheon provided by Iglesia de Cristo. Uh, So if you are not planning on staying for lunch today, I want to uh, invite you personally to stay with us uh, and have lunch so we can get to know you just a little bit better. Uh, I am not Jason, so we are not going to be uh, continuing on in our series uh, through the Gospel of John this morning. Uh, Rather, we are going to take a break, and we are going to still talk about the Gospel, but we're going to look at it through a different approach. We're going to be talking this morning about the Gospel according to Boaz. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you might recognize the name Boaz, maybe you don't. Uh, But we're going to be getting into that a little bit more this morning. But you see, what this has to do with is the fact that the Bible is a story of redemption. And as Christians, our objective is to understand that story. And more than anything else, we want to hear the words of the biblical writers as they intended and claim a part in this epic saga. But the question that comes to mind is, how do we do this? You see, to accomplish this, we need to get past the barrier that exists, that chasm of history, language, and culture that separates us from the heroes of our faith. And however, one of the biggest roadblocks in our ability to truly understand this epic saga of redemption is first and foremost, culture. You see, according to anthropologist Darrell Whitman, the average human's awareness of their own culture can be summed up in this way. It is scarcely a fish who would discover water. Now, in other words, people, rather than recognizing the trappings of their own culture, tend to assume that other societies are just like their own. Or better understood, uh, some people have done something that has been termed as canonizing culture. Or what this means is the belief that the norms of my culture are somehow superior to the norm of someone else's. You see, as we open up the Bible and begin to read, we are immediately confronted with this due to the fact that God has chosen to reveal himself through a specific human culture, his chosen people, Israel. However, one thing we must be clear on is the fact that God did not canonize Israel's culture. Rather, he used that culture as the vehicle through which to communicate the truth of his character and his will for humanity. You see, but if we are to understand the content of redemptive history, we're going to need to first understand the history of the culture through which it is communicated. So in order to understand the complexities of the term redemption, we're going to first have to understand that the term redemption is heavily culturally conditioned. And a quick survey of the Bible shows us many times that this concept, this word redemption is used throughout Scripture. 
But today, what I want to do to start off is look specifically at three points in Scripture where this term, this concept of redemption, is used to help paint a better picture of what we're talking about. The first one, beginning in the New Testament, comes in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. It says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come to His people and redeemed them. So this is the first kind of instance that I want us to be thinking through of this concept, redemption. The second one comes from Peter himself in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, where it says this. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You see, so we begin to see that this term, this concept of redemption, is well in the minds of the New Testament writers. But we have to ask the question, where did they get this term if we're going to truly understand the base understanding of what redemption means? Well, if they're using this term in the New Testament, well, let's turn back to the Old Testament, because that would have been the scriptures that these men would have been basing their writings off of. So turn with me to the writings of the prophet Isaiah. This was read for us earlier. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. It says, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Now, we asked the question, right? We said, well, okay, we see in the New Testament, this is where... Uh, They're talking about this. The writers obviously have gotten this from somewhere, the Old Testament. But where are the Old Testament writers getting this concept from? We have to ask the same question if we're going to truly understand the word and concept of redemption. And you see, contrary to what we might assume, they did not get it from a theological context. Rather, this word and the concepts associated with it emerged from the everyday secular vocabulary of ancient Israel. You see, to redeem in its first associations had nothing to do with theology, but everything to do with the laws and social customs of the ancient tribal society of which the Jews were a part. And so to understand the Old Testament writers' intentions when they applied this term to Israel's relationship with Yahweh, we're going to have to dive even further into understanding the society from which this word came. So, this may not come as a shock to some of you, but Israel's society was based on the tribal system. Hence why when we read the, the scriptures, we see them talked about as the 12 tribes of Israel. And in a tribal society, the family is the center of the community. So important that an individual's link to the legal and economic structures of their society was through their family. And in Israel, that link to society was the patriarch of the clan. Now let me share with you Uh, the description of what the role of the patriarch is from uh, biblical scholar Sandra L. Richter. This is what she says. She says, The patriarch was responsible for the economic well-being of his family. He enforced law and he had responsibility to care for his own who became marginalized through poverty, death, or war. 
Hence, the operative information about any individual in ancient Israel was the identity of their father, their gender, and their birth order. You see, in Israel's tribal society, the family was central. And I think to help us better understand the society in which we are diving into, I think there are three descriptive categories that will help us break this down even further. The first category that we need to know to better understand the Israelite society is that it was patriarchal. Now, that has to do with the centrality of the oldest living male member of the family and to the structure of the society at large. In Israel's particular tribal system, an individual would first identify their place in their society with their patriarch's household then their clan or lineage, and then their tribe, and finally the nation. Those who found themselves outside this system would also find themselves outside the society's normal circle of provision and protection. Now, there's something interesting to note. This is why in the Old Testament we see many reminders to the people to care for the orphan and widow. So great is God's concern for those who stand outside the protection of this structure that he actually describes himself this way in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. It says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless And the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. So, Israelite society can be described in one category as being patriarchal. The second category that we're going to be talking about this morning is patrilineal. And what this means is is that it has to do with tracing ancestral descent through the male line. Now, in Israel, the possessions of a particular lineage were carefully passed down through the generation, family by family, according to gender and birth order, in order to provide for the family members to come and to preserve the family name. Now, these genealogies would also give us a window into the privileged position of the firstborn in Israelite society. You see, the firstborn male child would replace his father in the role of patriarch upon his father's death. Hence, the firstborn would take precedence over his brothers during his father's life, and upon his father's death would receive a double portion in the family estate to ensure he can protect and continue on the family name. But let's pause there for a second, and let's ask a question, right, because Israelite society is patrilineal, but now let's stop and ask on the other side, but what about the women? What about the daughter? What was their place in this society? Well, as you probably guessed, a woman's identity in Israel was always tracked through the men in her life. She was first her father's daughter, then her husband's wife, and then her son's mother. And because of this, all her resources and protection came through the male members of her family. And a woman without a father, husband, or son was destitute without the charity of the strangers, and they would starve. But because of this, there are a number of laws in Israelite society which targeted the protection of widows. I'm going to share three of them with you this morning. 
The first one is the gleaning laws found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 19 through 21. I want to read this for you this morning. It says, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. You see, they are being given these laws because this then provides food for those who cannot otherwise provide for themselves. Or even more so, I want to share with you a second law that is known as the Leverite law, found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. But specifically, in verses 5 through 6, we get a glimpse of what this looks like. It says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. You see, there is protection in this law because the law is providing for the fact that a lineage in Israel will not be blotted out. The intent of this law was both to protect the widow from destitution and protect her deceased husband's inheritance. This was very important. But you see, there's still a third important biblical law which had to do with inheritance that addressed land. You see, throughout its national period, the bulk of Israelite populace lived on small family farms. The primary purpose of these small family farms was to ensure the survival of the family. And because of this, the inherited land holdings were, in fact, the lifeline of the family. And if poverty or dire life circumstances forced the sale of some portion of land, the land was not to be permanently sold. You see, there was the opportunity for the nearest kinsmen to step in and buy back what was sold from the family's land. And though it was not always possible, this was the expectation in Israelite society, that the nearest kinsmen would restore these patrimonial lands whenever possible. Again, the end result of this law that was was that no lineage in Israel was condemned to permanent or inescapable poverty. And so the second category that we're talking about this morning is that, excuse me, Israelite society was patrilineal. The third category that we're going to talk about this morning is that Israelite society was patrilocal. And what this has to do with is that the living space of the family unit was built around the oldest living male. I lost my place. (laughs) Uh, Was built around the oldest living male. Now this meant that the architectural structure in which the Israelite family lived was not so much a house as it was a compound. This would have been what an Israelite family household would have looked like. But you see, nuclear families were housed in individual units, which would have been clustered together within a larger walled enclosure. 
And what the design of this space, this family compound, helps us see is that one of the primary goals of Israel's tribal culture was tribal solidarity. And you see, in their unity, they found the capacity to prosper under harsh economic conditions, to defend themselves against attack, and to ensure their survival as a people group. Now, one of the things we need to note is that this idea of patrilocality extended well into the times of the New Testament and actually serves as a backdrop for many of Jesus' stories and teachings. However, let's put a pause on that discussion. And what we're going to do is we're going to come back to that idea at the end of the sermon. So hold on to that idea of patrilocality, and we'll come back to that to wrap up our sermon this morning. So, overall, what is most important to know about Israelite culture was that the family was the most important and influential element of society. And within this tribal system, the oldest, closest living male relative held the greatest authority in one's life and the greatest responsibility for one's well-being. And you see, as cultures typically change over time, so this happened to the Jewish culture, but this basic value system endured. So Israelite society was patriarchal, patrilineal, and patrilocal. But now the question that began all of this, we have to ask this again. How do these insights into Israelite culture help us in our quest to understand the story of redemption that is told throughout the scriptures. And if you remember, as I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, whereas the church has adopted the term redemption from the biblical writers, the Jews adopted this term from their everyday secular vocabulary. And rather than entering biblical vocabulary as a theological term, as we might expect, the word and concept of redemption actually entered the Bible through the laws and practices of Israel's patriarchal tribal clan. Specifically, the idea of redemption was intrinsically linked to the familial responsibilities of a patriarch to his clan. And so, to help us better conceptualize and flesh out this concept, let's turn our attentions to the scripture and more specifically the story of Ruth and Boaz recorded in the book of Ruth. To start this story, we see that during the era of the judges, an Israelite woman named Naomi marries a certain Bethlehemite named Elimelech to whom she bears two sons. So remember, in her world, she was a blessed woman, right? She had a husband and she had two sons. However, a local famine prompts Elimelech to abandon their patrimonial estate. Remember, this is a big problem. Land is very important to the Jewish people. This was their lifeline, right? And he decides to relocate the family to Moab, a neighboring country just over the Jordan River. Now, while in Moab the problem arises, Elimelech dies and leaves Naomi a widow. And this obviously is a tragic event for Naomi as she loses her husband, but ends up not being a disastrous one. Why? Because she still has two sons who are going to be able to protect her and provide resources to her because of the tribal system that Israel exists in. However, 
eventually the two boys take a Moabite woman as their wives, right? And her husband may have passed away, but Naomi's life would still have been stable at this point. Her children are grown, have taken wives, and are now in a place to continue the family line. But, as the story goes, their hope quickly fades as ten years pass. There are no grandchildren to carry on the family line. And worse yet, now Naomi's sons have died as well. Now remember, in the mind of an Israelite, this family has entered into a dire situation as there is now no one to link Naomi to the economic and social structures of the Israelite tribal system, essentially cutting her off from any resources or protection. Worse yet, their lifeline, the family farm, has long since been gone and there is no apparent heir to progress the family name. And so, with all of this swirling around in her head, Naomi chooses her only course of action left, to return to Bethlehem with the hope that a family member will take pity on her and take her in. So, she instructs her daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, to return to their families in hopes that they will be able to have the opportunity to marry again, bear children, and secure their own futures. You see, but if we look at Ruth chapter 1 verses 11 through 13, we see what this means and what this feels like for the family, right? Because they're a family. They've been together for many years now. So Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, she says, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husband's? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? You see, without any knowledge of the Israelite tribal culture, we as the readers would have no idea what Naomi is talking about. This would seem completely foreign? Why is she talking about having more sons and why are they waiting for them to get married? This would make no sense to us. But because we now understand something about patrilinealism, we now have an understanding of the Leverite laws found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, right? But there's a problem here because there's no one to step in to fulfill those laws, Why? Because now these women are no longer in Israel, they're in Moab. They're far from family, far from home, and so they are trying to figure out what to do. You see, Naomi is reminding her daughter-in-laws that she has no means by which to provide for them. She has no sons, no husband, and even if she did have a husband by some miracle and conceived a child that very night, her daughter-in-laws would have to wait some 20 years till those boys come to maturity. And Naomi could not fathom asking this of them. So listen what she says next to them. She says, No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. You see, this is an emotional 
moment. This is difficult. It feels like their world is caving in on them. They don't know what is to come, and they know whatever it is is going to be difficult. So we see Orpah does what her mother-in-law instructed her to do, but Ruth does not. And so Naomi again instructs Ruth to take the wiser path and to do as Orpah had done. You see, there was no shame in leaving Naomi, and they all knew that, but Ruth refuses to. Listen to what she says in verses 16 and 17. She says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. You see, upon realizing that Ruth had made up her mind, Naomi stops urging her to go, and now the two women return back together to Bethlehem as the barley harvest has begun. And as the story continues, I want you to pay very close attention to the information we're about to receive at the beginning of chapter 2. Listen to what it says. Remember, we have an understanding of Israelite society now. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. I want you to stop right there for a moment, and I want you to immediately put yourself into the shoes of an Israelite listening to the story and think about what the first thing that would have popped into their minds would have been. They probably were going, oh, cool. How is Boaz going to play into the story? You see, remember when we talked about the importance of land to the Israelite tribal society and how if dire circumstances or poverty forced the sale of some portion of land, the land was not to be permanently sold, right? So this was to allow for the opportunity for the nearest kinsmen to step in and buy back what was sold from the family's land. And I want you to keep this in mind as we continue to read the story because it helps us think more critically about what the author of the book of Ruth is deciding to tell us about this concept of redemption. And so as we continue on, we see that Ruth is aware of these, this fact that she cannot provide for herself. And so she's aware of these gleaning laws, right? So... Really quick, I'm going to throw this back up there again. We're not going to read it again for time's sake. But remember, these laws are in place to take care of the widows, the fatherless, and the orphan. It's so that they can gather food for themselves. But even more so, with Ruth's diligent work ethic and tender care for her mother-in-law, she earned the attention of a local landowner. Now, once again, the author makes note of the family lineage of this landowner. And if the Bible says something once, it's important, right? If the Bible says something twice, it must be really important, so we need to pay attention, right? Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to who? To Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. You see, I want you to pay attention, very close attention, 
Because we are about to be introduced to this character, Boaz, who now has been name-dropped twice, right? Something important is about to happen. This character is going to play a big part in the story of redemption of Ruth and Naomi. It couldn't be any other way. Why else would the author mention this twice? Listen to what the scripture says. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. And I think this gives us a great glimpse of the man that Boaz was because his first introduction into the story is that he is telling these men, he is basically saying, the Lord be with you. He cares about the spiritual well-being of his harvesters. He is a spiritual person that cares about his relationship with God and the spiritual needs of his workers. Let's continue on in the story. Verses 5 through 7. Boaz asked his servant who was in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman is this? The servant answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter. You see, when Boaz asks, whose young woman is this? He wants to know who she is, and more importantly, what family she comes from. Now, he must have known something about Ruth at this point. He must have seen her, must have taken note, but he's never met her up until this point. So Boaz gathers that information, and then he goes to talk to Ruth, right? In verse 8, it says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field, and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. You see, to this point, the text twice has mentioned Ruth's Moabite background. You see, she is an outsider, a stranger, an immigrant, and in a sense, a kind of refugee. And as the saying goes, she's not from around here. You see, Bethlehem was a tiny village where everyone knew everyone, which meant that they knew she was from a different nation. Add on to the fact that the Moabite language was different enough that every time she opened her mouth, people asked her, where are you from? And so despite being a foreigner in a new land, despite not having many rights in this society, despite all the possible reasons Boaz could have been rude to her, could have sent her off, I want you to pay close attention to how Boaz's kindness to Ruth plays a major part in the story. You see, after their encounter in Boaz's field, and after Ruth continued working for the day, Ruth returns back to Naomi, and tells her of his kindness towards her. In Ruth chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, we see this exchange. It says, Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man is our closest relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. And you see, 
at last we begin to see the secular origins of the term redemption. And as the story reaches its climax, Naomi instructs Ruth to go to Boaz and to carry out this plan to try to ensure their redemption. And so following her mother-in-law's instructions, Ruth goes to Boaz and uses the opportunity to ask him to redeem their family. You see, not only does Boaz agree to do all she asks, concerned for her safety and reputation, he also sends her home to her mother-in-law with a wealth of grain. So what are the practical expressions of Boaz agreeing to redeem Ruth? Well, if we go back and we think about our understanding of Israelite society, we see that as the story unfolds, we see that to redeem in this situation means that Boaz will do a number of things. One, Boaz will marry Ruth. Two, Boaz will buy back the patrimony of her deceased husband. Three, he will take both Ruth and Naomi into their household. And four, Boaz is going to father a child in Malone's name, that's Ruth's husband who passed away, thereby giving Elimelech an heir to whom the family inheritance will pass. And so, in his integrity, Boaz chose to embrace his responsibility as a patriarch and become Naomi's kinsman redeemer. And from this story and in this context, we learn what the true meaning of the tribal law of redemption was and why the word redemption was chosen by the Old Testament writers to describe Yahweh's relationship with his people. You see, in Israel's tribal society, redemption was the act of the patriarch, right? So we have to understand and ask the question, what is the meaning of the term redemption according to Israelite society? Well, you see, redemption was the act of the patriarch who put his own resources on the line to ransom a family member who had been seized by an enemy they could not overcome. Redemption was the means by which a lost family member was restored to a place of security within the kinship circle. This was the safety net of Israelite society. So you may be asking now, okay, but what does this have to do with the title of the sermon, The Gospel According to Boaz? Well, if you don't see the parallels between this story and the story of Jesus, let me spell it out. You see, Yahweh is presenting himself as a patriarch of the clan who has announced his intent to redeem his lost family members. Not only has he agreed to pay whatever ransom is required, but he has sent the most cherished member of his household to accomplish his intents, his firstborn son. And not only is the firstborn son coming to seek and save the lost, but he is coming to share his inheritance with those who have squandered what they had been given. You see, his goal is to restore the lost family members so that where he is, we also may be. You see, God the Father is buying back his lost children by sending his eldest son, his heir, to give his life as a ransom for many. 
so that we might be adopted as sons and share forever in the inheritance of this firstborn of all creation. Now, do you remember earlier in the sermon when I mentioned this concept of patrilocality, right? And I mentioned that it extended well into the times of the New Testament and serves as a backdrop for many of Jesus' teachings and stories. Well, you see, this idea plays a major role in our understanding of the redemptive nature of the Gospels. You see, in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 2, Jesus' closest friends have gathered for one last meal together. And after the meal concludes, Jesus tells his friends about his upcoming departure and the trouble that will follow. Now, unsurprisingly, the disciples are upset, and Peter asks Jesus in John chapter 13, verses 36 through 37, he says, where are you going, and can we come with you? Now, I want you to listen to Jesus' response. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. You see, did you notice Jesus' vocabulary? What does he say? He tells his disciples, in my Father's house, there are many dwellings. You see, for generations, we in the Western world have imposed our cultural lens on the message Jesus is telling his disciples. We tend to think that this means that there is a mansion up over the hilltop waiting for us. But the intricacy of what Jesus is saying to his friends is much more beautiful than just a big house. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that our ultimate destination as the newly adopted children of God is a family compound. And it is Jesus, the firstborn of his father's household, that is going to prepare for us a place in the father's compound. You see, the goal of redemption is not a marbled mansion, but rather total and complete reincorporation into the family of God. And as we end today, I want to leave you with the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 35. It says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You see, the concept of redemption is about bringing us back into the family of God. It is a total and complete reincorporation. That which has lost has been bought back at a price. Regardless of price, even the most unfathomable price, we were bought back into the family of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, the firstborn over all creation. And so as we end today's lesson, as we wrap our minds and kind of put a bow on this idea of the redemptive history of Scripture, 
I want to encourage you that if you feel like you need a family, that if you feel like you are lost, that if you feel like there's just a hole in your heart, that that hole can only be filled by Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation who came to pay the debt we could not pay on our own. And so as we end today, if there is anything that we can do for you, if you need prayers, if you just need a shoulder to cry on, if you are contemplating baptism, my question for you this morning is why not today? Why not become a family member in this great thing that we call the church at large? If there's anything that we can do for you, we want you to encourage we want to encourage you to come forward, find myself, find an elder, find someone standing at the door, talk to them and let them know what it is that you need together as we stand and sing this last song. Amen.